Alright, so I'm going to run down this worship real quick. Good evening, good evening. When we face up to the glory of God, we soon find ourselves face down in worship. To worship face down is the ultimate outward sign of inner reverence. Every posture in worship says something of both the worshiper and the one being glorified. Again. The raising of hands tells of a soul stretched out high in praise and the worth of one being exalted. Joyful dancing interprets a grateful heart and points in adoration to the source of that joy. When it comes to expressing our worship, what we do on the outside is a key a reflection of what's taking place on the inside. Out of the outflow of our heart, we speak and sing, we dance, and we bow, bow. God reveals and we respond. God shines and we reflect. In the very same way, face-down worship is the overflow of the heart, humbled and amazed by the glory of God. Face-down worship always begins as a posture of the heart. It's people so desperate for the increase of Christ that they find themselves decreasing to the ground in an act of reverent submission. When a soul is so captivated by the Almighty, to bend low in the true and total surrender seems only appropriate response. On several different occasions, the Bible allows us a glimpse into an open heaven. Each time is a window of revelation through which we discover more of what worship is like before the heavenly throne. And there's a whole lot of face-down worship going on in Revelation. John encounters the risen and exalted Jesus whose eyes blaze like fire and whose face is shining like a sun in all its brilliance. Overwhelmed to the core, John shrinks to the ground in reverence and fear. A few chapters later, elders too are falling down in a body of devotion. And as we journey further into heavenly fall of praise, we find even more face down worshipers. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Revelation 7:11 emphasizes that. The book of Ezekiel gives us another glimpse into an open heaven, and we find more of the same. The prophet beholds the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. There can only be only one response. When I saw it, I fell face down. 128. The reflex of his soul was reverence and submission. Facing up to the glory of God, Ezekiel soon found himself falling face down in awe and astonishment. Daniel gives us another Old Testament glimpse of the heavenly scene. He sees a vision of the Lord Almighty whose face shines like lightning and whose eyes blaze like flaming torches. Unknown by this divine encounter is another worshiper who cannot stay on his feet. I bow with my feet face toward the ground and was speechless. Daniel 10.15 emphasizes added. So many clues as to what our congressional gatherings should look like or found in this encounters of the heavenly throne. When it comes to worship, the throne always sets the tone. Each time we gather together, we don't just journey to a church building. We journey to the very throne of God. To lose sight of this is to lose sight of the majestic in worship. Every kingdom has a king, and every king has a throne, and the kingdom of God is no exception. He is the king above all kings, and he is the throne above all thrones. There is no higher seat of authority, power, and splendor in the whole of the universe. 
The elders bow low there, the angels encircled it, and the whole host of heavens arranged themselves around it. One day, a countless multitude for every nation, tribe, people, and out tongue will rather will gather this. There, see Revelation 7-9. As Ron Owens tells us, when we come to worship, we come to a throne. Everything else arranges itself around that throne. Journeying through the Bible, we find a whole host of face-down worshipers. Abram becomes one as the Lord God Almighty appears to him. Uh, you can see that in Genesis 17-3. Uh, Moses and Aaron fall face down to his day and encounter his glory. Uh, you can see that in Numbers 20 and 6. King David also adopts this posture in an act of humble repentance. See that in uh, 1 Chronicles 21 16. And overwhelmed by the radiance of the transfigured Jesus, Peter, James, and John are also found amongst the ranks of the face down. See Matthew 17 6. Throughout Scripture, countless worshipers meet with God and soon reposture themselves before his splendor. And it's not only the willing who find themselves face down in an encounter with the living God. In the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistine nation captures the Ark of the Lord. Unaware of the power involved with this embodiment of God's presence, they carry it into their temple and place it beside the idol of Dagon. Early the next morning, they find the idol face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. My friend Louis Giglio comments that if you find your God bowed down, face down on the floor before another God, then it's time to get a new one. Somehow the Philistines didn't quite get the message. And they have the audacity to lift Dagon up, putting him neatly back in place. Big mistake. The next day they arrive at the temple and there's Dagon back on the ground, face down before the Ark of the Lord. Only this time his head and his hands have been broken off and he's lying in pieces. <clears throat> no power set against our almighty God can stand in his presence. And those who dare to set themselves up against him are setting themselves up for fail, fall. It is a face down fall. A few years ago, I saw a powerful example of face down devotion at a gathering in Memphis, Tennessee. Hosted by the passion movement of college students, this was a sacred assembly at times set apart to worship, fast, and seek the Lord. Thousands of students gathered on the field that day to consecrate themselves and pursue the glory of God and nations of this world. Large investments aren't automatically the most profound, but this one truly was. There were moments of heightened celebration as we joined in the Savior. There were times of Salah when we quieted our heart and let the stillness remind us he is God. And there were moments of face down worship. Partway through the day, I saw a sight I shall never forget. It was pouring with rain and the ground was getting pretty saturated. The all around me were students face to the ground and the dirt offering up their lives to God. They were not concerned about the downpour or the mud or even the fact that they'd already been in that field for many hours. Here, we're a people consumed with the glory of God and everything they saw of him propelled them to their knees in an extended act of lordly worship. The movement called Passion lived up to its name that day. It was a passion accompanied by reverence, celebration, accompanied by submission. We see this fusion of joy and reverence many times throughout the Bible. The second psalm counsels us to rejoice with trembling. To delight in the welcoming mercies of his great love, yet all the while 
quaking in the depths of our hearts and the astonishing beauty of his holiness. In the same way, in Psalm 95, we begin by singing for the joy to the Lord, yet long, long find ourselves bowing down low in the worship. As Charles Spurgeon comments on this verses, joyful noise is to be accompanied with the lowest reverence. My favorite example of this mix of celebration and awe is found in the book of Leviticus. The glory of the Lord appeared and fire came out from his presence. When the people of God saw this, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Leviticus 9.24, an amazing picture, it is that the wow and the woe of worship, a joyful shout lifted high to celebrate the goodness of God, followed by an Isaiah-like woe is a tremble at his greatness. There's a whole lot of shouting for joy to be found in some of our worship gatherings, but how much face-to-the-ground devotion do we see? There's a lot of shouting for joy to the found of some of our worship gatherings, but how much face-to-the-ground devotion do we see? The scripture shows us that most profound and wholesome worship contains elements of both. The beautiful news is this. When God draws near in worship, we don't have to head for the door. God loves to meet with his people, yet sometimes it can be a pretty wise move to head for the floor. We must stay ever mindful of the glory of the one we are encountering. Yes, when we fully pass up to the glory of the Lord, we'll find ourselves face down in worship and every heart will have to face up to it sooner or later. C.S. Lewis talking about the second coming of Christ puts it brilliantly. Christians think that he is going to land in force. We do not know when, but we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. God will invade, but what is the good of saying that you are on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream, and something else comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. It will strike irresistibly love or irresistible horror into every creature. It would be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. One day we will all find ourselves in the worship of Jesus, every willing and unwilling knee bowed in humility, every artificial power and authority, forced to the ground just like the crumbled idol of Dagon. Rebellious tongues will not be merely science, but will ur urgently confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, it would be impossible to stand up on that day. Wow. So the otherness of God. Worship thrives on wonder. We can admire, appreciate, and perhaps even adore someone without a sense of wonder. But we cannot worship without wonder. For worship to be worship, it must contain something of the otherness of God. I've come to love that word otherness. It's such a great worship word, a sense that God is so pure, matchless, uh, and unique that... No one else, nothing else even comes close. He is uh, 
altogether glorious, uh, unequaled in splendor, and unraveled in power. He is beyond the grasp of human reason, far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind, inexhaustible, immeasurable, unfathomable, internal, immortal, and invisible. The highest mountain peaks and the deepest canyon depths are just tiny echoes of his proclaimed greatness, and the blazing stars above the faintness emblems emblems of the full measure of his glory. Otherness gives us a sense that God is so pure, matchless, and unique that no one else and nothing else even comes close. Many critics note that the skill of songwriter Bruce Springsteen lies in his ability to take the everyday, the ordinary, and make it sound extraordinary. Sometimes in the church, we find ourselves doing the total opposite. We take the extraordinary revelation of God and somehow manage to make him sound completely ordinary. We fail to communicate the sense of God's otherness, as A.W. Towser puts it, Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. Time after time, the book of Isaiah reminds us that the uniqueness of God, I will not give my glory to another. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In light of scriptures like these, I'm becoming more and more wary of worship songs that seem to make God merely sound like or equal. Once or twice, people have shown me a worship song and said, this is great. The lyrics are so down to the earth that you wouldn't even know you're singing to God. It could be a normal pop song or a love song. Now, I guess that the point they're making is cool cultural relevance and the good point to make, but there is a higher value in worship than cultural relevance. It is the glory of God. God will not be deluded, dumbed down, or patronized. He rebukes worshipers in Psalm 50. He thought I was altogether like you, but he is not like one of us. He is utterly, uncomparably beyond the furthest horizon of our imaginations. He is off the scale of our comprehension. We have merely none known the shadows of the mighty deep. A while back, I bought my daughter a couple little goldfish. I've never really been one for keeping um, pets, but I figured that these tiny creatures were probably quieter and tamer than most. So there they swam up on the mantelpiece, apparently forgetting everything, everyone, and a half times around the world. The very next day, I found myself watching a documentary about creatures in the deep sea right down the middle of this of the ocean. The camera was capturing the most fascinating images of wild fish and other strange sea creatures. I sat glued to the screen, so many varieties, so much untamed beauty, and there in the background were Matt Maisie's tame little goldfish doing yet another lap of the bowl. Sometimes in the church, I worry that we've settled for golden fish bowl worship. We convey a tame and domestic guy and then find ourselves stuck in the middle, uh, stuck, stuck, uh, find ourselves stuck in the endless pursuit of ordinary. But the call is to venture out into the screen, no encounter, extraordinary, 
and to explore mighty depths of God. And although our gathered earthly gathered worship times may never fully sound the depths of the glory, beware those that don't even attempt to do so. Back to Psalms 50, and we discovered that God doesn't even need our worship. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, all that is in it. Do we detect a harsh tone in the voice of God here? Yes, we most certainly do. This is the voice of an all-sufficient king of the universe. He does not need to be sustained, supported, or sponsored. He is not in urgent need of our offerings like a TV charity fundraiser urgently appealing for as many countries as possible. Charles Spurgeon writes, Do men fancy that the Lord needs banners and music and incense and fine limb? If he did, the stars would emblazon his standard. The winds and the waves become his orchestra. 10,000 times 10,000 flowers would breathe forth perfume. The Apostle Paul echoes the same truth in his speech to the men of Athens. He is not only served by human heads as if needed anything because to himself gives all men uh, life and breath and everything else. The plain truth is God has absolutely no need of our offerings. In fact, every single thing our open hands brings to him, whether a good deed or a tithe or a simple act of compassion came to us first from his hand. We cannot even offer a simple song of praise without using the breath God first gave to us. The book of human hammers this point home. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to the given? One of the biggest mistakes a person can make in a life is to think, think that God owes him or owes her or something. It destroys faith and insults the sovereignty of God. There are some incredibly painful struggles in this life and hard questions to which we may um, offer. Never fully answer. Yet even in these dark hours, we must accept that God is God and as such, he never owes us an answer. As the hymn writer William Copper puts it, God is his own interpreter. We cannot work him out or force him to fit into way of thinking. He is high above our human understanding, high enough to see things that we could never see. But the picture of God's illness is only really complete when we add to the mix. The reality of his outrageous grace is that the God does not need our worship, but there is a crowning beauty that completes this truth. God loves our worship. Um, God delights in an honest, heartfelt offering of worship. Dwell on this mystery for a moment. Here is this all-sufficient creator of the universe who could get along just fine without a little resume. Who could along... Who could along? Who could get along just fine without our little contributions? And yet, he rejoices and delights in every adore, adoring response to him. It is the joy of a dying father over a cherished child. It is the pleasure of a mighty king over a faithful and treasured servant. Just as we cannot begin to imagine the heights and the depths of his great glory, so too we cannot begin to 
fathom the infinite measures of his faith, fatherly love and grace. Not only does God receive with delights gifts that belong to him in the first place, but he also pays the colossus prices for delivery. And as an ultimate affirmation of this heart of wholesome or welcome, God has ever awakened or ever paid the price for us to draw near to him in worship. We've seen that everything we cannot ever offer to God in worship that has provided. So, by him in the first place, but even forgetting the gifts themselves, the very means of our access into his presence is all of his own provision. It is a gift of response we can never enter by our own efforts. We come the Father on the merit of what Jesus has done, the light of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. We come through Jesus, in Jesus, and with Jesus. And we come to in our power um, spirit. So not only does God receive this with delight gifts that belong to him in the first place, but he also pays a contasius of prices for delivery. In human terms, this is, means a little strange, but how can that be a meaningful gift? Surely the giver must pay the full price, but we cannot measure God by our human standards. This extravagant act of grace is yet another reminder of his incredible uniqueness. His ways and his thoughts are way higher than we can imagine. The more we delve into the brotherness of God, the more we gas the truth that worship is quite simply all about him. A phrase we may have snugged many times, but do we realize just how true it is? For every aspect of this life, the whole of our existence, our creation, our salvation, and our sanctification is first and foremost all about God. Another journey to the book of Isaiah and we get the message loud and clear. Everyone who is called by name, who I created for my glory, the people I form myself that they may proclaim my praise. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I refined you for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. The Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, stands set apart from all others. We are the created and he is the uncreated. Around him revolves and unfolds the story of his great and eternal glory. And yes, right through the very heart of this epic narrative runs a beautiful thread of grace. He is the steadfast God of love, and there is mercy to be found on every page. Time after time, we find ourselves amazed by his blessings. He lavishes on us, yet let's not be fooled into thinking that this story is all about us. It never has been, and it never will be. God is very passionate about his glory. Some of this might find a little hard to compare. At first, every day we see more have mere humans making claims to uh, making claims to um, fame and boasts of glory, and this can make it all the harder to get our head around the fact that God must care about His own glory. 
But we must not confuse displays of earthly arrogance with God's declaration of his glory. It is not at all the same as boxer Muhammad Ali in his prime, raiding and raving around the ring, screaming, I am the great. I am the greatest, and self-proclaiming his name is how. Well, surely, he had his time as a champion, but like all other mere um, men, he could not hold on to his crown. The boasts of men are motivated by pride and pure arrogance. They are empty, temporary, and shallow. The claims of God flow from glory and pure holiness, and they are powerful, internal, and true. For God to be God, he must... Uh, he must care about his own glory. God must prize himself above all else, for no prize anything or anyone else more highly than himself will compromise his work, and therefore implicitly imply that he is not God after all. If it is right for man to have the glory of God as goal, can it be wrong for God to have the same goal? If man can have no higher purpose than God's glory, how can God the reason it cannot be right for man to live for himself as if he were God is because he is not God. However, it cannot be wrong for God to seek his own glory simply because he is God. In the book of Isaiah, the Lord declares, how can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. He will never give up his title or yield his supremacy. He is untouchable, invincible, and eternally glorious. And all celebrity obsessed creature. Fame rises up and then fades away. One minute someone has it, the next minute he or she is nowhere to be seen, and then someone else enjoys or endures their 15 minutes of fame. God, on the other hand, will never allow himself to be defamed, nor will he let his glory pass on to another. He is the undisputed heavyweight king of all the glory. In Psalm 66, the writer cries out, Sing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. In recent times, the church has been inspired to make the praises of God more passionate and more intimate. And this is all vital ground for the singing church to recover. Yet there's also a call to make sure his grace is glorious. One of the biggest challenges facing a lead worshiper these days is to somehow help the people of God find a voice to respond to his otherness. We need poetry, rhythms, visuals, and melodies that will help us to sing the glory of his name. Offerings that make it clear we are approaching the one who is above all others. One beautiful way of conveying this is to offer God that which we do not spend on any other. I love the lead up to Jesus into, into uh, Jerusalem. When he sends his disciples a certain house to fetch a colt that has never been ridden, it speaks of the otherness of the Son of God, the means by which he will be ushered into the city has been reserved by him and him alone. We must make sure that we do not do the same in our congregational worship, find ways of responding to God which were reserved for him only. In the Old Testament, God gave the instructions on how to make a special anointing oil for his tabernacle. He makes it clear that this oil is only to be used for worship. It must not be used for cooking or any other purpose. It is sacred, and you are considered as sacred. We must um, room for a second sacred in our congregation of worship, resources that we use exclusively for God and no other. Take, for example, the act of bowing down as we 
Psalm, the last chapter. This is thoroughly biblically response and worship in our Western culture, at least. Um, vowing face down is a physical gesture that we do not offer to any to any um, other, which makes a fantastic response. Um, to set apartness of God and act a reverence reserved for his presence only. This principle must go far beyond our church gatherings and seep into the very fabric of our everyday lives. To treasure words, thoughts, and deeds we will only use in response to the Lord. In the past, I've wondered whether the fact that we have words in scripture, which are no longer in common uses, might be a big hindrance to cultural relevance. I'm starting to think, however, they use well, they might also be a great strength. Take the world holy. For example, a word that conveys a notion of one who is set apart. The very fact that we only ever use it in the context of God and his church is a very appropriate thing. Now, obviously, there's a balance to it found. Too many uncommon words, and we start presenting a barrier to uninitiated, but accompanied by teachings on their meanings. These distinctive names and descriptions of God might actually be powerful tools. Our culture is making up new words all the time. How fantastic of worshiping church. We're to recapture a few old ones as yet another way of conveying the uniqueness of God. Out of reverence for Yahweh, the Jewish people would not even describe the vowels when writing down his holy name. A way in which even their writings, they convey something of the otherness of God. And while back, I decided that every time I type or write a word that refers to God, I will use a capital letter. It's just one tiny way in which I can reflect something of the otherness of God by doing this. Every time I sit down to write a song or any sentence to or about God, I'm reminded of his holy otherness. Reverence for God must find its way into the smallest details of our lives. It's time for singing church to... Um, once again, encounter the beautiful otherness of God, but we can not sing of that which we have not seen. And yet more wise words from A.W. Towser. What the church needs today is restoration of the vision of the Most High God. Spoken only half a century ago, this insight seems just as relevant to us today. And there you have it. The otherness of God and uh, face down all in one chapter uh, let's have a blessed day